This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I have some great guests to introduce to you today. A new guide designed to help producers and publishers make books more accessible, things like braille conversion, audio guides, large text options and dyslexia-friendly formats will be launched today. Inclusive Publishing in Australia, an introductory guide, follows on from Australia's commitment in an international treaty last year. And those who have pulled it together say this is the result of extensive consultation with both community and industry. The guide co-author Julie Ganner and the Australian Publishers, Publishers Association Sarah Runcy will join me later in the hour to talk about the guide and what it means for readers, producers and publishers. And very, very soon, author of award-winning short story collection, Australia Day, Melanie Cheng, will join me to talk about her debut novel. In Room for a Stranger, we meet a pair of unlikely housemates and explore racism, compassion, ageing and family, all with the sharp observation and gentle humanism that typified Melanie Chang's short fiction. Melanie will be joining me shortly in the studio to talk about her new book. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, Meg has been living alone for years since her sister died with just her pet parrot Atticus for company. One night, a man tries to break in and Meg, shaken, decides the only thing to do is to get a live-in companion. Meanwhile, Andy, a struggling young biomed student, needs a cheap place to stay. He's failing his course and somehow has to pass this semester. An only child, things aren't great for his parents back in Hong Kong. His mum's grappling with mental illness and his dad just lost his business. Maybe his aunt's idea of moving into this older woman's house in the suburbs will be the push he needs to pull it all together. And so begins Room for a Stranger, Australia Day author Melanie Cheng's debut novel. Melanie joins me in the studio now to discuss the book and the themes underpinning it. Mel, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have a fellow Mel in the studio, (laughs) can I just say. (laughs) No worries. I'm the Melanie, you're the Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) We can do it that way. Um, So look at... One of the things I really love about your writing, and certainly I'm not alone in that, is is the really subtle and humanist way you explore issues that are really at the pointy end of Australian society, issues around race and culture and the clash between them. Uh, this book does this incredibly beautifully. Uh, it's a gentle story in many ways, uh, but there are some very pointed elements that, that happen here too. Uh, I really, I really want to know about the evolution of how this story came into being because you do cover a lot of things, including things like, I guess, ageism and, mm-hmm. you know, grappling with that sort of stuff too. Where did this story spring from? Um, the, the short answer is that the idea for this premise... Um, 
originated from a story I saw on the ABC actually a few years ago, uh, which which basically was talking about home sharing. And um, on this particular program, there was an elderly Australian woman who'd taken in uh, an overseas student from China, and um, it it just introduced their their relationship and what they were both benefiting from that particular arrangement. And that really intrigued me, uh, the idea of these two people who come from seemingly very different backgrounds um, suddenly sharing the very intimate and claustrophobic space of a family home. And, you know, for me, that just got, you know, my creative juices, I guess, um, bubbling. And it really tied in with a lot of the things I was already preoccupied with and that I'd already started exploring in the collection Australia Day. As you mentioned, I'm interested in ageing, I'm interested in in chance encounters and um, what kind of legacy that can leave behind on people. And yeah, that kind of arrangement just, um, I thought it was a great pressure cooker environment for a novel and they just had so much scope. Look, I don't think I'm drawing too long a bow to suggest that both the title and the premise of the book really feel like a metaphor for, you know, I guess Australia's welcoming of uh, newcomers into our country or lack of same. Um, Room for a Stranger couldn't be a better title when you're you're sort of dealing with that. And, and we're really looking at, you know, by having someone come into the family home of an older Australian, uh, you really are inviting comparisons between, you know, I guess what's going on broader and more politically in Australia and, and you know, the, the metaphor of this house um, but just to kind of really address the, the the literal story that you're telling here can we talk a little bit about Meg and her her setup and experience because she's like many uh, older Australians particularly women is uh, she's living alone um, she's not doing terribly well financially and you know she's quite vulnerable yeah um, I have a lot of affection for Meg um, Meg is 75 years old she uh, does is now living alone. She hasn't. That's a relatively new thing for her. In the past three years or so, she devoted her entire life really to caring for others. So she cared for her dying parents, and then when they passed, she was um, involved in caring for her uh, disabled sister as well until her sister finally passed away. Um, and Meg is loosely based on uh, my favourite aunt, my Auntie Wendy, um, who also found herself at age 16 in the primary carer role when um, her and my mum's mother passed away. Um, and she devoted her entire life to caring for my mum and my mum's brother and my mum's father. Um, and she never got married like Meg and she never had her own um, family and I guess even as a as a as a teenager th- that intrigued me that kind of level of sacrifice that she made um, and so this this novel allowed me to try and get into her headspace even though she's now passed and I wasn't able to talk to her in a lot of detail about it but I felt it it helped me connect with her um, on on a deeper level. And of course, it's very much informed by my work as a GP. For a long time, I worked in community health and I would see a lot of um, elderly patients. And um, I was also quite shocked um, by the loneliness. Um, for some of them, the outing to the GP was their 
their big thing of the week. And, you know, I'd encounter obstacles when I was looking after these patients. Um, for instance, you know, if I wanted to refer them for a particular procedure or test, um, they might decline that because they had no one to take them to the test. Or maybe they did have someone that could take them, but they were, you know, not wanting to be a burden. And so they would rather potentially miss a life Set, you know, life-threatening illness diagnosis um, than to ask a friend for a little bit of help. And so I'm very interested in those particular characters and, um, you know, what it might take for them to to open themselves up and ask for a bit of help. It's a re- She's a really beautiful character, uh, Meg, actually, because she's someone who has, as you've said, sacrificed a lot for others. Um, I guess her mindset is one of natural empathy for, for people, um, you know, I guess for the underdog or for the person who's often ignored. Um, also, she's, you know, she's... Uh, she and Andy, and I want to talk a little bit more about this, have a lot in common when it comes to, you know, how they've dealt with the world and with their families in particular. Um, but there's a wonderful sort of scene early on where you kind of get the excitement that Meg has at the idea of this young person coming in and moving into her house. It's not not necessarily entirely, you know, a kind of maternal leaning, but it very much feels that way. She's just so, you know, she's trying to make herself feel a little bit more presentable. Um, the idea of having company is so important and exciting to her. It's an incredibly moving moment when you sort of get that, especially because then when Andy moves in, he's like, <laughs> he's kind of, you know, playing the role of sullen millennial, um, <laughs> which, you know, seems, you know, later turns out to be not necessarily the case at all, like many mis- understandings or reductions um i would love you to talk a little bit more about the this kind of first meeting between this rather odd couple yeah um i think you've really tapped into um, meg's uh, emotions there yes she she's nervous um because she's never shared a home with anyone outside her her family um but she is initially a bit excited about it as well um because, the, as I said, the loneliness is a relatively new thing for her in the past three years or so. And she's a bit tired of eating meals alone. Um, as someone that has lived alone, you know, you don't go to a lot of effort when you're cooking for yourself. And so she's looking forward to to just having that connection. Even when, when Andy first moves in, she's she likes the sound of, um, you know, him moving around in the room next to her. It just gives her some comfort, even just those even though he's not talking to her just hearing another person inside the house after after a few years gives her that comfort and security that she was looking for um but when andy comes in um he is he's not so excited about about the arrangement initially i must say um he he has reluctantly agreed to this really it's the only way he can stay in australia because his as you mentioned his father's business has collapsed and whilst they have enough for his tuition it's really not enough to be able to keep him in his his spencer street apartment um so this is the compromise um and Andy, I think I don't know if he's so fearful. I would say that he's a bit 
preoccupied with all the stuff that is going on in his life, which is that he is under some pressure because he wants to try and get into medicine. So, and his academic grades are not at the point where that's that's a reality for him. And he is, um, you know, harboring a crush for a fellow fellow student in his course. And so he's he's a little bit preoccupied with his own things. And so it's just for him, it's it's just a room in a house. Um, but as as the story unfolds and um, certain things happen and um, he's he's put in a position where he he does need to rely on Meg and she does step up to the challenge. If you've just joined us, uh, I'm talking to Melanie Chang about Room for a Stranger. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. Mel, I'm I'm actually really... I love the subtle way you kind of explore these issues around racism. I mean, there's some, some scenes in the, in the book that are very overt in terms of, you know, like at one stage uh, Andy's on a, a tram, I believe, and, and is you know observes or is the the victim of that kind of abuse um that all too sadly is still a feature of australian life um racial abuse happens um but the the more subtle forms of it are also very beautifully rendered here there's a rather awkward dinner um that happens between uh Meg um, Patrick, who is her would-be um, beau, who comes to dinner and, and Meg insists on Andy sitting with them as a kind of chaperone, which he's none too pleased about. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Patrick goes on to, to do all those kinds of things that is that sort of passive-aggressive form of racism that I'm sure many people are very familiar with. The way that that's kind of, you know, you play um, Meg's kind of perspective on this where she sort of really it becomes quite acutely aware that, that it, things are off with how Patrick's talking but but the way it's kind of broken down later by Andy and his friends is is kind of beautiful I like how you've done this where you've kind of really given uh these different perspectives air um to to kind of really explore how people are looking at things and unpick um why those things uh, affect people mm, yeah I think that's something that I started to explore in the collection Australia Day um the title story in that collection really deals with a lot of those those episodes of um what we now term casual racism um but that, yeah, um, I was less interested in the really overt racism, like the the abuse on the tram, because I think for all of us, that's well, for most of us, that's clearly not 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 on, um, and that's clearly wrong. Um, but I think all of us probably have had episodes where perhaps we have offended someone maybe not in even intending to because of our own assumptions and stereotypes and those are the the moments those more subtle moments that I think are really opportunities for us to reflect and learn from and so I did include that that tram scene but what I was more interested in is actually what happens after that episode so how do the other people on the tram react Mm. do they are they complicit in not saying anything there is one man who kind of apologizes on behalf of 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 the of the abusive person um and and how does Meg react you know what does she do in response to that as well as for the um later scene in the when they're having dinner um 
that was actually taken from real life to, <laughs> you know, fiction's not meant to be um, based on fact, but of course you pull out these little things. So when I was at school in Hong Kong, um, it was actually my history teacher, I remember, who um, said that, you know, that Hong Kong and places like India should be grateful to the British because they um, were responsible for instituting good governance in these in these countries. And, you know, me being a pretty obedient student who generally, you know, looked up to their teachers and took took on board what they said, even that back then, I knew there was something not right in what he he was t- teaching us at that point. It didn't sit right with me. It didn't it didn't sit with what I knew about the history of Hong Kong and the Opium Wars and um, the segregation. And um, so Patrick says a similar thing in the book. And Andy um, also, you can tell it doesn't sit right with him, although he doesn't necessarily say anything even Meg can pick up on on that um and so those are those moments that I think we've all been been privy to um and I think it it really sparks um us to think about what should we do in those those situations I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer but I I just want people to think about you know what is the right thing to do in that type of type of circumstance there are other issues running through this book that really actually uh you know connect our two characters a lot more strongly as well uh they both uh, obviously struggle with complicated familial relationships or for, for meg it's her fact of sacrificing a lot of her life uh, for others including a sister with whom she had a really quite you know she played second fiddle very much to a sister that she then looked after for most of her life um and andy as well is like really feels like as an only child there's a lot of pressure on him to do what his family needs uh, and he's also and it's you know this is very beautifully and subtly wound in there there's a lot of unspoken trauma about uh the the kind of situation that his mother is in in terms of her mental health and how that's affected his childhood and his relationship with both parents as well there's a lot of unspoken stuff in both of their family lives and what I really like about this is that that there's a beautiful kind of understanding that grows up between them that seems like quite a sort of uh, you know a necessary connection for both of them in some ways and it helps them to kind of look at things slightly differently Um, Mm. I'd love you to talk a bit more about this kind of aspect of the book as well yeah um as i said on paper meg and andy couldn't really be more different you know they're vastly different in age in in background in gender um in culture um but there is something that is similar about them and i think it well firstly that they're both naturally introverted i would say they 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 enjoy to some degree being alone and they are a little bit wary or fearful of 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 strangers and um and performing in front of other people um but also they they have for a long time just focused on pleasing other people in their lives not necessarily pleasing themselves or um pursuing the passions or interests of themselves and 
you know, I I see this novel as a coming of age story, not just for Andy, who we traditionally see as as someone of the right age to come of age, but even for Meg, um, you know, she is having a, a well you know, exploring having a new relationship at a very late stage of her life. Um, and this is causing her to, to you know, question a lot of things in her past and f- to find herself, you know, who is Meg, who is Andy? I, I think these are the questions that they are grappling with in the book and that they come closer to understanding by the end of the story. There's uh, There are some events in here that I won't reveal because uh, they do kind of, you know, send the story in a different direction, but they really reveal this beautiful kind of, you know, the way you do it is, is so subtle and so um, at the same time quite a, an incredibly moving and powerful, um, you know, portrayal of, of love and compassion and how those things can stum- sometimes be complicated by a lack of communication. Mm. Um, I, really, I, I really can't recommend this book enough. It's um, it's a gentle read, um, but there's a lot of powerful stuff in there. Um, Melanie Cheng, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much, Mel, for reading it. That was uh, Melanie Cheng, the author of Room for a Stranger. Uh, this is um, the first novel by Melanie, uh, who was the award-winning author of short story collection Australia Day uh, and that has just been released so get your hands on a copy now. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, last year, Australia signed an international treaty which opened up a path to converting books to fully accessible formats such as Braille audio guides, large text options and dyslexia-friendly formats, to name a few, sidestepping the need to seek copyright permissions. Since then, a lot of work has been done to hash out a set of guidelines that will ensure books are available to many more people. Today, the Australian Publishers Association and Institute of Professional Editors will launch Inclusive Publishing in Australia, an introductory guide. And joining me to talk about its implications are co-author Julie Ganner and the Australian Publishers Association's Sarah Runsey. Julie and Sarah, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much. So this guide is the result of a lot of work and consultation after Australia signed the Marrakesh Treaty last year. Sarah, perhaps you can start here. Why was it necessary to get an international treaty around accessibility? Was the necessity to seek copyright permissions really accessing, uh, you know, really kind of affecting accessibility formats being made available? Well, in the Australian context, not so much. We've had actually in Australian law an exception that allowed um, access to copyright material for the print disabled for well over 30 years. And in fact, I'd say that Australia to a degree had a really important role in the formulation of the Marrakesh Treaty because it was actually our approach to having an exception like that that allowed um, uh, organisations such as Vision Australia or the Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind Children to be able to use and access and convert to accessible format copyright material. So in that sense, uh, in the Australian context, it certainly was... um, 
uh, not as necessary, but not all national jurisdictions have that kind of copyright rule. And so in that sense, an international treaty was certainly necessary. Since then, of course, many countries have signed up to the Marrakesh Treaty. Uh, You need about 20 countries to sign up to an international treaty for it to come into effect. And I think well over 50 countries have now signed up, maybe even more than that. And it's, uh, it's now being implemented throughout the world. So in that sense, yes, it was an important step in having an international treaty that enshrined essentially a copyright exception for the print disabled. That's really great. Julie, can I ask you, are any of these guidelines that are appearing in uh, in the guide that's just been created going to represent a shift in how content producers already provide work or are they just a standardisation of what was already happening? No, not at all. Um, that's the idea behind the guide. Uh, we found that um, while a lot of people um, were interested in accessibility, Um, There isn't really that much consolidated knowledge about what publishers need to do uh, to make books accessible or even possibly what the barriers are in the first place. Uh, So that was the idea behind the guide to outline all of those um, issues and then start suggesting how publishers can integrate accessibility into their publishing workflow at every stage. So basically, in a way, this is really giving people uh, some guidelines to just get going with some of these things because many publishers don't really have an idea. Is that is that more or less right, that, that actually this is saying these are the needs um, that we've kind of drawn from the consultations that we've had and these are some of the ways you can do it is that more or less what these guide what this guide is hoping to address well there were there were three areas that we wanted to address um, first was to let people know what the Australian regulations um, and laws are around providing accessible goods such as books um, and information um, and also to talk about um, the spirit behind those laws um, so that, for example, the National Disability Insurance Act talks about the right of everyone being able to participate in um, in the economy and in leisure and everything else that, that they might be excluded if they can't visually access um, some information. So that was the first stage. Um, the second was to start looking at what are those, some of the barriers are that people with a print disability experience when um, trying to access information. And then the third was to actually uh, look at how we can start removing those barriers. Sarah, how much onus is there now on publishers to be able to institute these, uh, the kind of, you know, or overcome the technological barriers that some people have um, to reading or to books? Uh, How much of this is going to be kind of supported by some kind of government um, funding or benefits that will help to maybe help smaller publishers or content producers to to enable these guys to take effect? Or is the onus really on the publisher to be able to do something about it? Well, I'd say it's a little bit of both. Um, Certainly uh, the Australian Publishers Association has seen it as a policy priority priority to to make uh, becoming an inclusive publisher, which is essentially mainstreaming what we know to be accessibility solutions uh, into your publishing workflow. That's what inclusive publisher means, at least from the perspective of um, print disability. But um, uh, 
what we are also really pleased to see, though, is that um, uh, Labor has come out to support the Australian inclusive publishing industry with a $2 million injection to really ensure that all publishers are able to uh, uh, skill up their workforce because currently that's a big industry skills gap and this is a bit of a game changer for us and for the industry. So it's a tremendous boost to the cause of inclusive publishing in Australia. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking uh, to Sarah Runcie and uh, Julie Ganner about a new guide that's uh, being introduced to hopefully help the publishing industry become more accessible to those who have extra reading needs, uh, perhaps making sure that books are going to be available in more formats that will be uh, making it more inclusive. I do want to talk uh, about what you both hope this guide will achieve achieve. Uh, I'm certainly interested in some of the, the literature that you put out about the fact that um, that a lot of Australia's literacy challenges are actually about accessibility. How many of uh, the things or the, the I guess, uh, issues around lit- literacy do you think will be uh, overcome with some of the changes that are being introduced in this guide? Well, um, I think that there are a a lot of benefits to inclusive publishing. Uh, I I had the the privilege of being in Japan last year addressing their advanced uh, publishing lab about what we're doing here in Australia, which is a bit unique because um, uh, the Australian Inclusive Publishing Initiative is actually a group of organisations across the print disability sector, publishing, government, uh, copyright bodies. So we've brought every together in the one room to talk about, including our very important editors, um, uh, uh, to talk about how we can construct collaborative consensus approaches to solving these problems. And because it is a unique way of approaching the disability issues around print, um, uh, a, there's been a lot of international interest. Now, one of the things that I um, discovered whilst I was there is that digital audio is very useful for people with dyslexia. Now, it's a solution that's been developed for the print disabled in terms of vision impairment, but it actually has an application that's much broader. And I think that one of the values of mainstreaming these solutions is that we will discover that they uh, address problems, perhaps some of which we didn't even know we had, but they have a broader application beyond perhaps the narrow idea that it's just about vision uh, impairment. So yes, of course, we see the potential that it will be able to address broader literacy issues in Australia. Julie, as co-author of this um, this guide, which I've seen a copy of just uh, just earlier, and it looks uh, like it's a fairly hefty <laughs> volume uh, that you pulled together, how did you decide on what to to kind of uh, come to an agreement on when uh, when it came to what to put in the guide? I'm sure that there's a lot of people um, that have particular needs. There are some that that are, we're familiar with. There are some like uh, the ones that that Sarah's just raised about um, how uh, you know digital publishing can help with people with uh, dyslexia. Um, what kinds of things have you decided to pull in and how did you decide to uh, to address those issues? Well, one of the um, first bits of research that I did was a visit to the Royal Institute of um, Deaf and Blind Children uh, to see what um, some of their students were experiencing um, and how much work they were all having to do um, to create accessible textbooks every year. 
has a lot of money and a lot of um, effort going on every year in um, disability agencies and government organisations to convert textbooks into um, accessible formats whether that's braille or other tactile formats um, um, and also looking at some of the um, digital formats that are available that can, you can use a read aloud um, uh, facility for and I thought that was particularly pl applicable because everyone has a right to an education and if you can't read the text that you've been set for your course um, you're going to have difficulty doing that so um, and that affects not only people who are blind but for example um, not all students who can see um, are actually visual learners and textbooks nowadays tend to be very very visual things um, so that was that was very informative because I thought that was probably representative if we can fix those if we can create accessible formats for students then it will work for everybody because the benefits of uh, good design are, um, translate to all readers. If something is navigable, if it's, you can find your way around it easily, if you can access it, whether you're reading it or listening to it, then um, it's, it's wonderful for all of us. So it's not only people who, um, for example, were born with blindness, um, people of a more mature persuasion like myself are finding that our eyesight deteriorates over, over the mm. years. Um, so um, it means that um, for me, for example, um, I can um, enlarge print and so on if I'm reading something in a digital format. Uh, so it doesn't need to be necessarily for someone who we might normally consider to be disabled. Um, and the same for people who can't um, hold a book for some reason. So they might have a, uh, a physical disability that causes muscle spasms or um, uh, make them unable to manipulate a book, <coughs> excuse me, such as arthritis. Um, so if we have um, a, a book that's in an accessible format, in a digital format, that they can access in another way, that will benefit them too. So it works across the board. It's just not not just one sector of disability. It's a really interesting uh, kind of, I guess, um, turn up for the whole digital publishing realm, isn't mm. it? Because there are a lot of people who are rusted on uh, paper book readers, but of course that does make accessibility a much uh, bigger challenge in terms of making sure all formats are available for those who need it. Uh, so I guess uh, in a way is, is really some of, are some of these guidelines really only able to be applied because we now have these technological options available to us, Sarah? Uh, look, I think that that's partly true. Um, having been uh, and still am rusted on as far <laughs> as print and I much prefer to read a book in its paper form, um, I, I don't anticipate that our publishing industry is going to ignore rusted on people like myself. Um, there are in fact many people like me um, who prefer a print book. But having said that, I think that the... Um, the digital revolution has presented many challenges to the publishing industry, but also many opportunities, and this is one of them. Absolutely. And I'm hoping as well, I, oh, I understand that this um, report is available uh, to the public. Um, where can they find it, actually, if, 
if people want to either download or receive a hard copy? Well, um, we are available on the uh, on our website, which we are launching tonight, which is um, aipi.com.au. So the acronym of the Australian Inclusive Publishing Initiative.com.au. And we have on that website a number of other resources also, including personal stories of people with pr- um, print disability. Um, uh, we have interviews with people who are really industry leaders in this area across the world. Um, and and also um, uh, uh, we have uh, some guiding interviews with publishers who have started the process of becoming more inclusive. That's really great. Um, just kind of in, in finishing up, what kinds of things, you know, do you hope that are going to come out of this really in the publishing industry? I know that obviously uh, publishing is a, sl- a slow-moving beast at times and, you know, some somewhat resistant to change. Do you think that this is going to be warmly received or do you think that this might be a little bit of something that, that needs some encouragement? Well, I think it's already being warmly received. Um, uh, Sarah and I were both at the Australian Book Industry Awards uh, last week. And there was a lot of enthusiasm in the room for this. Um, publishers are very aware of um, uh, the fact that there are readers out there who can't access their books. That's not great for them either. <laughs> uh, we all want people to read what we've been working on. Um, and it will take training across all the sectors. So I represent the Institute of Professional Editors. Um, so we'll need to be thinking about... Um, how we tell our editors to um, reconsider the use of language so that um, we're not using expressions or terms that are excluding some readers um, and um, creating text alternatives, for example, for for visual images, um, which uh, if someone can't read it and, and it's information in there that's important, it's got to be in a written form instead. Um, and the same will be for indexers, designers, all the people who make up the industry as well as those working in-house. A lot of us are freelance. So it'll be a, it'll be a slow process of all the individual associations that support the publishing industry as well as the publishers themselves all working together. And that's what we've been doing. That's the collaboration that's been happening. What I hope to see is that... Um, in a couple of years' time, that we will have an inclusive publishing industry in Australia and that we will have books born accessible. That's such a wonderful uh, way to end. Um, well, I'd like to thank you both, uh, Julie and Sarah, for joining me on Backstory to talk about this great new guide that will soon be available. Thank you. Thank you. So that was uh, Julie uh, Gadda and Sarah Runsey talking about inclusive publishing in Australia, an introductory guide. Uh, if you are interested in reading the guide or finding out more about uh, accessibility and how you can implement it or if you would like to access it, uh, you can visit aipi.com.au. That's aipi.com.au to download a copy of inclusive publishing in Australia or order one or uh, look at some of the other material associated with it. My goodness, we're already at the end of the show. I have. I uh, would like to thank my guests, obviously uh, Julie and Sarah, who you've just heard from, and uh, Melanie Chang, who came on earlier to talk about her her first novel, Room for a Stranger, which I very much recommend you getting your hands on. Three triple R. 
You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.